The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code THEGIST. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Wednesday, November 19th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Lyricists of America, take note. We are now officially ready to move one lyrical pairing to the played out list. This doesn't often happen. Most famously, the year was 1991 when Genesis, in an ill-advised comeback attempt, ruined one of music's most famous and easy rhymes for everyone else for all time. Rock and pop had leaned on the walk and talk thing for years. Yes, indeed. Fats Domino told us he was walking and then he was talking and many followed suit. But now or back then, officially, that's when it became played out. Sadly, today, so has another rhymed pair. Here is an example of this word duo being expertly employed harmoniously. Think I'd just stay here and drink. And for years, bands would think, and then they'd drink. And they'd get to drinking, and wouldn't you know it, get to thinking. But now, all that is over, thanks to a recent spate of songs that seem to have discovered all on their own, hey, these two words sound alike. Here's the country band Florida Georgia Line. What are you drinking about? And now, from the obverse musical genre hip-hop, here is artist Bebe Rexha. I can't stop drinking about you Without you I ain't the same So pour shot in my glass and What made this particular performance almost hypnotic is I saw it on Bebe Rex's website. It was a clip from her performance on the Today Show back in September. But the feed I was getting from the website must have been the one that aired in L.A. because it still had the Today Show news scroll under it, all the news items that was important for Today Show viewers to know. So here we have this 24-year-old beauty sultrily running her heavily bejeweled fingers through the ringlets of her raven tresses while singing a song of the substance required for a love unrequited. And here's what's going on underneath. The controversial plan to trap and kill coyotes in Seal Beach starts today. The ODA voted against creating toll lanes on the 405. Gordo, the dog hit in a high-speed chase last week, is well enough to go home today. And I think I need a drink. On the show today, I will spiel about a killer and a potential killer and explain how the potential part is scarier than the killer part. But first... Afghanistan, a new book documents how the U.S. has blundered through this infamous graveyard of empires. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. There's traffic, there's parking, there's people. 
Sartre said hell is other people. I don't think he even lived when there was a post office. He might not have even gotten to his more prominent works beyond that one very quotable quote. If he had to spend his time standing in line at the post office, unless Sartre knew about Stamps.com. Stamps.com is the best way to get your mailing and shipping done right from your desk. It's not complicated. It's easy official U.S. postage. You buy it, you print it. It can weigh all your packages because they give you a free scale. How much does it cost to send someplace? Put it on the scale. Anywhere internationally, mailman comes to your door, picks it up. You got real stamps on your real envelope. You just save time. We're asking you to try stamps.com today. There is a special offer for GIST listeners. There is a promo code called The GIST. What this code gets you is a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, the free scale I talked about, $55 in free postage. So go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. So it was just announced that the United States is planning to base about 1,000 security personnel at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul after the formal end of the military mission in Afghanistan. Now remember, in 2009, President Obama approved the tripling of troops in Afghanistan to 100,000. So Americans have gone from 100,000 to 1,000 in five years. So does that mean the war was won? Does that mean the war was lost? These are all good questions that are answered, perhaps not to American satisfaction, in the new book, The Good War, Why We Couldn't Win the War or the Peace in Afghanistan. It's written by Jack Fairweather, who's Middle East editor and correspondent for Bloomberg News. Hello, Jack. Hello. So I want to ask you about this subtitle, Why We Couldn't Win the War or the Peace in Afghanistan. There's peace in Afghanistan? Tell me about this peace in Afghanistan you speak of. Well, it does seem like a long time ago, but back in 2001, there was a limited mission to uh, to get rid of al-Qaeda, uh, their safe haven in Afghanistan. That was achieved in weeks, and um, there was much, much rejoicing. The problem was, with the war, runs right through the story, is that we conflated the Taliban with al-Qaeda. Instead of creating a nice peace opportunity uh, settlement that all Afghans could subscribe to. We uh, continued to alienate the Taliban and their tribal supporters and ended up fighting a fighting the war. We had a one war and then another one. So, yes, the public statements by the Bush administration, a lot of chest thumping, a lot of evil and good, good guy, bad guy. Taliban was in the the ranks of the bad guy. How high up was this view shared? Bush is not the architect of the war. He's signing off on what his underlings are advising. Are they getting it wrong? The guys, George Tennant, the director of the CIA, Coffer Black, other people, are they getting it wrong? How far down the levels in the Bush administration do you go until you get people who really understand what you're laying out? This is a tribal conflict. This isn't the existential conflict that maybe George Bush portrays in his speeches. I, I write about it in the book, this extraordinary scene where Karzai just got the phone call, you're the next president. A few hours later, the Taliban leadership come to see him with a letter of surrender from Mullah Omar. And, um, you know, it's a completely key moment. They sat down, had tea, broke bread, got down to the, the real stuff, how many cars the ex-ministers would have in their retirement, how many security guards they would have. This offer then got passed up the military chain of command to Rumsfeld, and Rumsfeld said, no, thank you very much. This, you know, Taliban, they're on the on the dark side with al-Qaeda. We can't do a deal with them, even 
when it's a deal that recognizes their defeats. You know, it was uh, it was a key moment both for the U.S. and for you know President Karzai in the early part of his regime. He recognized that we needed to reach out to these Pashtun uh, tribes and incorporate them into the the government. And he he didn't stand up to the U.S. Was there even debate within the Bush administration about the wisdom of this deal? There was there was a little bit of debate coming from the Islamabad station chief, a guy called Robert Grainier, you know, a very accomplished uh, CIA officer who was arguing that we needed to spend more time getting rid of the Taliban because we needed to bring together these Pashtun voices and that if we rushed to seize the country with the Northern Alliance, we were just going to, in effect, put the Northern Alliance yeah. in, in control and we needed to be the power brokers, right? I mean, that's always it's what so many conflicts are crying out for is, is a power broker and, um, you know, the U.S. A wise and judicious power broker. Yeah, well, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but those are hard to find. <laughs> How central to the dysfunction of Afghanistan is the figure of Hamad Karzai? Because speaking of the very simple good and evil, I remember when he was first sort of introduced to the American public. And man, he was celebrated as the uh, epitome of coming together of this disparate culture down to the threads of clothes he wore. And if you took a newscast from... 10 years ago and compared it to as he exited, man, was he then portrayed as, you know, a double dealer and dishonest and, you know, fundamental to the rot of Afghanistan. So, you know, how important is Hamad Karzai, his psychology, uh, if the United States didn't understand him to understanding what went on in Afghanistan? Um, I think our relationship with Karzai um, is at the nub of much of what went wrong. Um, We built him up, idealized him as a sort of Gandhi-like figure. In fact, he was never anything like Gandhi. He was a you know, a small-time tribal leader who knew how to pull strings and put his, you yeah. know, pull a tribal structure in place. And what was he, like the fourth son of... Right. Yeah, of, just not an important tribe. Right. Yeah, he was um, going to run his family's restaurant in right. Maryland. And, 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 this was going to be his life. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and what he, you know, what he did is he put his allies in, in power and... Uh, he, as, as soon as the war started going badly, um, we decided that Karzai wasn't, you know, the great Gandhi figure for the nation. And then suddenly he was a drug-taking loser who we had to get rid of um, as, as soon as possible. And one of the things I've tried to do in the book is reassess Karzai's character. He is, he is central because at the same time we were building him up into our idea of what a leader should be, we were ignoring what he was telling us, that his vision for the country, which I think was was one that if we had followed, it would have led to, uh, you know, a much more stripped down and a, a much more sustainable model, not, you know, the, the vision of, of a stable, democratic, prosperous Afghanistan that we were at times sold, but one that, you know, is closer to the grain of Afghan culture. By the same token, the idea that he was this corrupt, despotic, weak character who was at the center of Afghan dysfunction is also incorrect. I mean, by by the later years, we had so, you know, so stripped him of power, so undermined his authority that he had was actually very little that he could do. I mean, he was a, a lone figure with 100,000 U.S. troops mulling around the country over which he had no control. 
You know, it does seem that so a word that I would use to characterize United States involvement or a phrase is failure to empathize. We just time and time again didn't put ourselves in the position of the Afghans. I'm not even saying this from a humanitarian view. The, pow- the, the, the warlords, what does this warlord want? What does Hamad Karzai want? Not what do we want, not the grandiose vision, but what would make this guy happy? What would make the Taliban happy? How do you make them all happy enough so that maybe for their own sake they don't kill each other and for our sake they don't kill us? And we just never did that. This is perfectly demonstrated for me in in the story of opium. So, you know, it's Afghanistan's only source of foreign revenue, effectively, other than a few tomatoes and pomegranates they sell, is opium. It accounts for 70% of its actual economy, um, if you include the the black and the the real market. And um, it's the livelihood for, you know, a vast swathe of the country, especially, you know, the poor farmers who had a pretty tough time of it over the past 30 years. This was a moment to sort of reach out, try and legalize the market, even just buy the opium as a way of as a way of uh, subsidizing their their lives. But instead we decided, nope, we should whack down their opium fields and uh, you know, I saw some of the most bizarre scenes I think of my career as a as an overseas reporter traveling with uh, you know, US uh, contractors on ATVs around fields, whacking down, literally by hand with sticks, whacking down poppy fields, whilst Afghans from the local village watched on, stony-faced. You know, then we would get shot at and the military helicopters would be dispatched and, you know, there was a a house that had been destroyed uh, a few hours later. I mean, that's... That was the... (laughs) You talk about empathy. I mean, that was... You know, this is what Afghan villagers were seeing of of U.S. intervention, of Karzai's administration. And I don't think it's any surprise that they turned against us. So we get to the Obama administration elected as a man who's not against war, but against stupid wars. And I think that meant with Iraq. I don't get the impression from your reporting that you think he ever really knew what to do with Afghanistan. On his campaign trail, it was uh, an easy way to bash Bush. He was the guy, actually, who called Afghanistan the good war and promised more troops. I think as he once he got into office and began looking at the problem and obviously with the financial meltdown, you know, consuming those the early months of his uh, office, I'm not sure he um, he really wanted to get involved in Afghanistan. And, you know, he did allow himself to get railroaded by the U.S. military, uh, you know, I, I suppose that rubs both ways. I mean, the U.S. military also took advantage of Obama. And I, you know, I spoke to General Petraeus and I think one of the most surprising things I heard any officer say was that they knew Obama, and this is from Petraeus, they knew that Obama was had cold feet, wasn't didn't want to surge troops, but the greater mission of the Afghan war took precedence over you know, over their commander-in-chief's feelings about it. And um, Obama needed to stamp his authority and on the war and, and, you know, show his vision. We all kind of have an f- idea now of what Obama stands for. It's a sort of containment strategy. It doesn't involve tripling a war effort, right. wasting billions of dollars on um, foolish nation-building missions. But he went down that path, and um, at some level it was quite cynical of him to... Um, appease the military so he could forget about Afghanistan. And am I right, as many soldiers and Marines and airmen have died under his watch in Afghanistan as uh, under Bush's? Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
How much time did you spend in Afghanistan? I, was How have you spent? I, I lived there for a, for a year. I took my, uh, in 2007, I, took my, I just got married and took my uh, wife off to live in a little house in Kabul. What a romantic you are. <laughs> and who did you speak to for this book? It seems not just the military, not just tribal leaders, not just CIA, but everyone and more. You know, it's one of the great joys of book writing that you get to talk to the general who issued the order. You speak to the U.S. soldier who was firing the bullets. And then you speak to the Afghan villager on the, uh, you know, who had his house shot up and, you know, pulling together this composite picture to um, help bring the war to life, help balance the, the U.S. with lived experience of the war of the Afghans and to show how these two worlds uh, <laughs> collided without ever meeting. And who gave you information that was really eye-opening, maybe from someone you didn't expect? Uh, that, well, that, that's a, that, that's a uh, good one. I, mean, I, th- what, you know, I got a, a wonderful trove of documents from um, a former Afghan ambassador to the U.S. who had just by chance had all of the minutes of Karzai's meetings for the first four years of the war on a hard drive. You know, the Afghan government doesn't have national archives. This is, you know... The that first. was the national archive, his hard drive, yeah. <laughs> so, so that, I mean, you know, that was, that was very nice. And, you know, you just hear little stories when you're out reporting that you sort of can look into, like, you know, a tribal leader who, was taught, who you know, recounted how he was given Viagra by the CIA, uh, he and many other warlords, as a tool to uh, winning their support, uh, which proved remarkably effective uh, for a time. So it is, it has been, it still is a 13-year war. When you tell people this, I think it's surprising. People do the math in their head, oh yeah, you know, 2001. But it is a surprising fact in a way that I think if you told Americans that the Vietnam War was how long it lasted while it was going on, or World War II or Korea, it wouldn't be surprising. It was much more present to them. And is that just a function of the number of killed in action and the draft, or is there something else going on? That's a very good question. I, mean, I think, obviously, the draft was a major factor in the difference between Vietnam and Vietnam and Afghanistan and, you know, the way in which, you know, this consumes a very small amount of national wealth compared to the to the Second World War. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always felt it was a little bit of a problem the ease with which uh, you know you can go to war versus you know the the cost. One of my issues I like to push is the fact that you know the war doesn't end for when soldiers come home. It doesn't end in Afghanistan in in 2014 in terms of our relationship with Afghanistan. Like there's a sort of enduring legacy of the past 13 years. You know that's going to last for many decades more to come. You know when you intervene in these countries the ripples keep on rippling and um, although it seems right now that uh, you know this war maybe doesn't feel as huge as Vietnam or as the second world war I think you know when we look at its its impact on Afghanistan on the US military you know the way in which we view our role in the world the America sees its role in the world I think we will we'll see it as a as a major generational battle along with along with Iraq Jack Fairweather, author of The Good War, Why We Couldn't Win the War or the Peace in Afghanistan. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Mike. Harry's. Harry's is the official razor partner of Movember. It will be there for you the entire Harry month 
of Movember if you want to grow a mustache. You get an amazing shave, and you can support Movember's quest to fund research on men's health issues. Look, I want to be honest with you. I, I use Harry's. I love Harry's. I get a good shave. And I've always said you won't nick your face with Harry's. Recent documentary evidence shows that I have a nick on my face. Is it that I strayed from Harry's? No, it is not. I cut myself using Harry's. Now, me admitting this, this is risky. This might be anathema to what the advertiser wants, but I want to be honest with you. And I want to say that Harry's, it's a potent razor. It will take the beard off your face. But if you get distracted, if a horrible song that conflates thinking and drinking is playing in the background and you quickly turn your head, then your chineal region could bear the effects. Harry's is a great razor. I use it all the time. Still, Harry's is a razor. I feel like saying this if you are the kind of person who wants to raise an adolescent chimp in captivity. That might not be the best choice. Harry's, however, maybe not as potent and deadly as the chimp. And also, if used on the chimp, would make the chimp seem like perhaps a very uh, muscular and long-armed small boy. Shipping is free, which is big, right? So often you hear these prices and it's like, and shipping's an extra 30. No, shipping is free. The $15, that's all you're paying. Satisfaction's guaranteed. Go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in my code, the gist, with your first purchase. That's H A R R Y S.com and enter the coupon code, the gist, and change the way you shave forever. And now the spiel, the potentially deadly. So on Monday, there was a live show with the crews from the Slate Political Gab Fest and the Culture Fest and my guys from Hang Up and Listen. Maybe you were there. Maybe you are me because I do listen to the show. In which case, hi, Mike. Milo has swimming tomorrow. Remember to pack his suit. All right. That was very indulgent, wasn't it? Anyway, the last segment of the show was a free-flowing debate segment. Not everyone was involved in every debate. For instance, I was not even allowed to take a position when moderator Dan Coys asked. All right. If only one... One musician's work could ever be played again for all of human history. (laughs) Should it be Billy Joel or Beethoven? Oh, to have championed Billy Joel. I'd have said that within Joel, and I do think this is, by the way, a reason Joel never got his due because fans like to call their guys by one name, you know, Springsteen, Jagger, Elvis, the other Elvis. Anyway, within Joel, I'd have said, resides Beethoven. All that Beethoven played can also be played by Joel. And not just Beethoven. Every event in the last 125 years between when Beethoven lived and when Joel lived exists and has been imbibed by Joel. And therefore, he is imbued with all of history. He is imbued with Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, all of it. Alas, I was not assigned that topic. Here was my topic. All right, the question is, if you were granted the godlike power to do one but not both of these things, would you choose to end global warming or cure cancer? And as part of the debate, I was also assigned which side to take my side was as God I would eradicate cancer. This happens to be the side I agree with. Surprisingly, I don't think most people in the room agreed with me. Actually, actually, I've lived my entire life and should know by now not to begin sentences with that adverb if they include the idea that people don't agree with me. I did kind of try to convince people, but mostly I was going for zingers, right? Like I noted that global warming has been called a cancer, but never the other way around. But in talking to some people after the show, I think that the crowd really 
if they were God, would tackle climate change over cancer. And to me, this is insane. This is wrong. And I will in earnest explain why this is wrong right now. I think it's largely because of a fear of the unknown. Cancer is the devil we know. Climate change is the devil we're just getting our heads around, but might not even be a devil, might be a minor demon, possibly a sulfuric imp, nothing more. But there was something that Emily Bazelon said that I think is important to reckon with. This is our coming apocalypse. And cancer, terrible as it is, is something we have learned to live with as a society. It kills an expected, predictable number of people. And what seems odd that the sheer efficiency of a killer, its steady, knowable lethality, makes it seem less dangerous. I think she's right. But let's talk about what we do know about cancer. Half a million Americans die of cancer every year. It's one of those big numbers, but a stat that doesn't hit you near the gut. Okay, imagine a full slate of NBA games. Every team is in play. And imagine everyone watching a game in the arena dying. That isn't even close to the toll. You also have to include every hockey game, the entire NHL, all full arenas. So watching the L.A. Clippers, watching the Chicago Blackhawks, all full arenas, full slate of games, every one of those spectators dead. That is cancer's toll in a year. Well, how about worldwide? So how many people die each year? I didn't know. There are 7.2 billion people on Earth. About 56 million died in 2012, according to the World Health Organization. 56 million total deaths. Of these, 8 million died of cancer. That's not a could happen if the rivers rise death toll. That's what is happening. That's what happened last year, the year before, will happen next year. Estimates to 2050 are unnecessary. What about global warming? Well, here are some predictions. According to the World Health Organization, between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause approximately a quarter million additional deaths per year from malnutrition, malaria, diarrhea, and heat stress. I would also like to point to another group called DARA that issued a report meant to maximize fear. And I am not saying there's nothing to be fearful about, but plenty of sober-minded scientists who looked at this DARA report said they couldn't really get behind it. Even still, with this number meant to scare The number of deaths, they said, by 2030 from climate change would approach 5 million a year. Cancer's already killing a documentable 8 million a year. It's not a hypothetical extrapolation based on squirrely definitions. It's 8 million dead people in the ground. That's 60% higher than a scare tactic number, but somehow the cancer number is seen as less scary. Let's talk about some other numbers. Let's talk about money. According to the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., cancer's total Total cost, $216 billion. It's $86.6 billion in medical and $130 billion estimated in lost productivity due to premature death and illness. So how much will global warming cost? The president's Council of Economic Advisors, that's President Obama, tried to calculate the cost of global warming. And they said if the temperatures rise one degree Celsius higher than they were meant to rise anyway, it would equal about 0.9% of economic output, meaning it would cost about $170 billion. Cancer right now is much more costly than that. And it was last year and the year before. Add up all those costs, the dollar amount cost of cancer. We don't think of it like that, but it's staggering. There's another thing about all the reports about what global warming could cost. It's all hinged on the premise, if we do nothing. That's why they make the reports, to scare us, to rightly scare us, many times to very accurately, even conservatively scare us. If we do nothing, this is going to happen. Look, I want cap and trade. I want the lowering of admissions. 
But when I was growing up, acid rain was this huge environmental concern. Now, you don't hear so much about acid rain. Some statues are still slowly eroding, but we did something about it. Scrubbers and smokestacks, international agreements. And then when I was a young man, the hole in the ozone layer was a huge concern. And we did something about it. We banned CFCs. Again, international agreements, the hole shrinking. It could be essentially no hole by 2050. I am not arguing that global warming isn't real and dire. It'll be much harder to tackle than the ozone hole. And even if we do tackle it, there'll still be ill effects. I'm just arguing about context and the likely extent of the problem. Yeah, global warming is now a cause in the way that cancer, I don't want to say cancer is not a cause, but it's not a cause with the urgency if you don't have a relative who is affected by cancer. Like Emily said, we process cancer. We plan around it. We haven't turned fighting it into a virtue. We don't draw political lines around it. We don't put opposing it on a continuum between the selfish and the virtuous. Cancer is here. Cancer is real. Cancer is much worse of an indiscriminate killer, a killer of children, a destroyer of families, a threat to living than global warming is today, or I believe that global warming will be. We have tried to cure cancer, tried with all our might. Many forms still defy treatment. We haven't even really begun to fight global warming. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the GIST's producer. And when I'm feeling blue, you know I think of you, though you're half a Jew. To Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, I ask, can't you see what you're doing to me to an appreciable degree? My heart didn't start when Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, tore it apart. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Many of the songs I mentioned are also in iTunes. It's good for that, too. But it's really good for podcasts. And review us. You don't need to review Genesis. Genesis is going to sell its records. Review us in iTunes. Thank you for that. You can sign up for a daily email that will send you when the show's ready. That's at slate.com slash gist email. Same thing with the app Yo. Sign up for Yo. Sign up for the podcast part of yo we'll tell you when we're ready and we are on facebook.com slash slate gist email the gist at slate.com you can listen to the gist whenever you want some say the nighttime is the right time for this trite rhyme and remember to fight crime as fiercely as you might slime and together we can smite mime thanks for listening Hello, I'm Allison Benedict. And I'm Dan Coyce. On this week's episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting, we talk all about the tension between stay-at-home and working parents. Please search for Mom and Dad are Fighting on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts.